Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, we ask that you would pour out your spirit to nourish and feed our, our whole persons, our bodies, our minds, our souls this morning through word and sacrament. Be with me this morning. Fill up where I am lacking. And Father, no, do not allow my limitations to hinder your word. And so uh, we commit ourselves fully to your love and care. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're going to be looking at Psalm 27 this morning, and if I'm going to be working out of the Psalter from the prayer book, if you pick up one of the Pew Bibles, you'll know that the verses are numbered differently, so don't let that confuse you. All the same words are there, uh, so just be aware that I'm going to be working out of the Psalter. That's on page 299. We'll begin that this morning. This week, we begin the season of Lent, this coming Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, and one of the key thematic organizing principles of Lent is pilgrimage. And the chief context of pilgrimage is the wilderness. In Scripture, the wilderness is a place of trial and testing. And one can experience in it both great joy and profound suffering. The trial and testing of the wilderness is prompted by pressures and concerns that are both internal and external, and often those two are working together. For Israel, one of the tests they experienced in the wilderness arose because of an external pressure, a lack of water and food. And such pressures and concerns often test us internally, test our faith, our commitment, our trust in God. The overriding challenge of the wilderness is what will you do when you are confronted with circumstances that you cannot change? When you have met the end of your own power and strength and more is required of you. When you cannot orchestrate your own salvation. Will you turn to God who is present with you in the wilderness. That's the overriding concern of any wilderness moment in our lives and any wilderness encounter in the scriptures. David faced many such wilderness challenges in his life, whether literally in a wilderness when Saul was chasing him or figuratively in his life. And he writes Psalm 27 for those who are in and who will face a wilderness season of trial and testing like Israel in the wilderness, like David in his life, like Jesus, as we'll be confronted next week in the first Sunday of Lent in the wilderness. In fact, the wilderness looms large in the background of this psalm. We hear the echoes of it in the, of the wilderness journey of Israel and David's choice of words to describe God's dwelling. In verse 6, David uses the word tabernacle, Sukkot, which means a temporary dwelling. This is where we get the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles for ancient Israel, where they would go out into the wilderness and build a temporary dwelling just for a season to remind themselves of the wilderness journey that their ancestors had. And in verse 8, David uses the word dwelling, which translated dwelling in our Psalter, but is best translated as tent. These two words alone draw into mind the wilderness journey of Israel from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land and of God's presence with them all along the way. God's presence with them was a movable presence. 
He, he, he tented with them. He tabernacled with them. And where else do we hear that language in the scriptures? John chapter 1, verse 14, and Jesus Christ took on flesh and he tabernacled, he tented with us. For David, Psalm 27 arises from a wilderness season in which he experiences personal attack. We hear him in verse 15 uh, in our Psalter's verse, uh, verse number, cry out to God for deliverance. He says, deliver me, not over to the will of my adversaries, for there are false witnesses who have risen up against me and those who speak wrong. In the midst of trial, David pins this psalm as a psalm of confidence, of a sure and unshakable confidence in God, whom he affectionately describes in verse 1 as my light, my salvation, my strength in life, my stronghold in life. And in the final verse of the psalm, David turns to each one of us, to you, and he issues this exhortation from his own experience of God in the wilderness. Oh, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. I like this translation better. Let your heart take courage. And then he repeats the same clause from the first part. Our, our translation changes that. But it's, again, oh, wait for the Lord. Oh, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Oh, wait for the Lord. David has... David was a shepherd both of literal sheep and of God's people as king. He knew he was not unique in his experience of the wilderness. Even our Lord Jesus has such a wilderness experience. And so David pins this psalm for you and for me that when we face the trials and tests of the wilderness, we might have a guide. We might be better prepared to turn to God alone and discover him to be our light our salvation, our stronghold in life. And I know many of you right now are facing wilderness circumstances, circumstances beyond your power, beyond your strength to change or overcome or even endure. Whether you're experiencing personal attack, profound loss, unrelenting physical disease or illness, whether you're in a situation where you feel lost and overwhelmed, unsure of what to do next, or whether you're facing a hard situation in your marriage, or with your children, or at your work, this psalm is for you. David penned it for you. And as the psalms become the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is Christ's psalm for you. Here in it this morning, not merely the voice of David, but the voice of our good shepherd of Jesus, tenderly and confidently speaking to you, let your heart take courage. Await on me. Trust me. The good news of the gospel in Psalm 27 is that we have an anchor for our souls. We can be calm and confident, courageous and brave when confronted with wilderness trials and testing in this life. How? Because God gives himself to us. That's what the psalm declares. And if we have him, we have no need to fear whatever it is that we face. So then the question for us this morning is how do we find a rock-solid place of confidence in God's presence when all else around us appears to be swirling about, chaotic, 
four words help guide us to that rock-solid place. Remember, seek, pray, and wait. Remember, seek, pray, and wait. Write those down. Put those to memory. First, we must remember. We must remember God's past faithfulness in his past acts of guidance and deliverance. Just listen to David there in verses 1 through 3 again of this psalm. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom then shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom then shall I be afraid? And how can he have such confidence? Verse 2. When, past tense, when the wicked, even my enemies and my foes came upon me to eat up my flesh, he describes them as this ravenous beast. That's, that's, the, that's the intent they have towards him to destroy him. When they come against me, they stumble and fall. Though a host were encamped against me, and David, David found and experienced many times in his life an army camped against him. When a host camps against me, yet my heart would not be afraid. Why? Because he puts his trust in God. Though war rose up against me, the end of verse 3, yet would I put my trust in him. David's present confidence is based in part on God's past acts of faithful presence in his life to dispel darkness. David discovered in a tangible, experiential ways that God was his light, my light. David's present confidence is based on God's past acts to save and to give him strength. Whether that situation was an enemy on the battlefield or whether it was a false Witness on a courtroom. So often when we face circumstances beyond our control, we allow them to cloud our vision with fear. You know, what, you know what that's like when you're in the midst of a difficult season? It seems like only what's right in front of you, the thing that is causing the angst, the thing that is tr- the trial and the test in your life is the thing that has all your attention. And in that moment, it's so hard to remember, to hear God's voice again, a voice that should be familiar to us because he has revealed himself to be light and salvation and a stronghold. Memory then is vital. If we're honest with ourselves, we are fickle and our memories are short-lived. Like the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 8 we, are, we have short-lived memories, and Moses knew that. And he exhorts them in chapter 8, verse 11. Listen to this. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied... So when you're experiencing the blessing of God to its fullness, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord. You'll forget the Lord your God who brought you. Now here's the past acts of faithfulness. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Who brought you water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, 
lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me the wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers. Do not forget God. David's first, the first move that David makes to give a confidence in God so that we can experience the wilderness trials in life with faith is memory. Remember God. Now, that takes active work prior to the trial. Cultivating memory. Coming, for us, it's coming to, to the gathering of God's people every Sunday so that we might hear the word of God read and preached and so that we might experience again the memorial of the central act of God's faithfulness to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. So first, we remember God's past acts of faithfulness to us. Second, we must seek God above all other things. Seek God above all other things. Listen to David, beginning in verse 4. One thing, if I desire to the Lord, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David's confidence is rooted in God's presence. David's confidence is rooted in God's presence. Those who trust God love him and long to be with him. Those who trust God love him and long to be with him. The presence of God becomes for them and for David and, and for us, Lord willing, a holy obsession. David is obsessed with living in the presence of God. It is the one thing that he desires over everything else. The one thing that he desires over everything else. What do you desire above everything else? If David is right, I think he is. If our, if our top desire in life is not God, then we are ill-equipped to experience and to encounter the wilderness. David is obsessed with living in the presence of God. David will eventually ask for deliverance, of course. So it's not the only thing he desires. But here he asks for something even more fundamental than deliverance. He asks to dwell in the presence of God. You see, if you know deep down your bones the sort of deep-seated knowledge that comes from memory, if you know that Jesus is your light, if you know that Jesus is your salvation, if you know that he is your strength, then you know that the single most important thing in life is to have Jesus. Not just have the gifts he provides you, but to have him. To be in the presence of God continually. Nothing else will do. Nothing else will satisfy. Because you know that if you have God... If you live in the presence of Jesus, you know that all things will work together for your good, including the struggle, including the suffering of the wilderness. This is what it means to behold the fair beauty of the Lord. The fair beauty of the Lord, it's an interesting translation. In Psalm 90, verse 17, fair beauty, the same word there, is translated the goodness of God. The goodness of God, which is connected to a plea for God to, to prosper our handiwork, to prosper the work of our hands. 
The fair beauty of the Lord refers to the tangible and generous goodness of God towards his people. When we're in his presence, no matter what circumstance we may be going through, we can gaze upon him and see in him his goodness towards us, even in the midst of suffering and pain. That's what David is challenging us with this morning. When we gaze upon the beauty of God, the goodness of God, we realize that there is nothing better than him. Nothing bigger than him, nothing greater than him, nothing more satisfying than him or more enjoyable or more dependable or more fun or more lasting or more rewarding than God himself. For David, we would be fools to ask for anything less than God. We would be fools to ask for anything less than God, any lesser good. We want the ultimate good. We want God to be with us and we want to be living in his house Forever. Remember, seek. Thirdly, when in the midst of the wilderness we must pray. We have God with us. Why not ask Him then for what troubles us, for what ails us? We must pray, crying out to God to act like He's acted in the past, to deliver, to give mercy and grace and strength and comfort and ultimately salvation. Listen, listen again to those verses there, beginning in verse 9 of Psalm 27. Hearken to my voice, O Lord, when I cry unto you. Have mercy upon me and hear me. You speak to my heart and say, seek my face. Your face, O Lord, will I seek. O hide not your face from me, nor cast your servant away in displeasure you have been my helper, leave me not, neither forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord takes me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in the right way because of my enemies. Deliver me not over to the will of my adversaries, for there are false witnesses who have risen up against me, and those who speak wrong. If we dwell in the presence of God, then we can be confident that he hears us. We can be confident that he hears our voice, our cry, our plea, our request. And we can be confident that he will answer. Now, his answers sometimes are perplexing to us, but we can be confident that he will answer and that he will answer in ways that are for our good. Remember, we're gazing upon the beauty of God, the goodness of God to his people in the temple. So David here calls on God to hear him. The remarkable thing here is that David believes and knows this to be true even in the midst of a wilderness circumstance where God feels absent. You can hear David grappling with the felt sense of God's absence in verses 10 through 13. I will seek your face, but please don't cast me away. I will seek your face, but please don't leave me. I will seek your face, but please don't forsake me, Lord. I know that even if my mother or my father were to leave me, you never would. You always take me in. You can hear David working through that sense of, we know when we, we encounter moments of trial and testing, of pain and struggle, of suffering, we know those are the moments where it seems like God's presence is not with us. That's the temptation. And David wrestled with that same temptation, and he's working through it here in those three verses he has that fear that God is absent in that moment, but he reminds himself. He remembers that God has been there before. 
in similar situations that felt like this one. And so he calls upon God to hear him. And after wrestling through his felt sense of God's, presence, God's absence and returning to his confidence in verse three, 13, that the Lord takes me in, he's confident of that, that the Lord takes me in no matter what I'm facing in this moment. David then requests that the Lord teaches and leads him in the ways of God and that the Lord would deliver him from his enemies. In these two Request to teach and lead and to deliver. David asked for God to address both the internal and the external pressures of the wilderness. Notice that David asked for God to teach and lead him in holy and righteous living before he ever asked for deliverance. So profound. We often go straight to the ask. But notice how David structures it all. He says, seek God, the person of God, to be present to God. And then seek to align your life with God for him to teach you and to lead you in his ways of life that are holy and righteous. Then ask for deliverance. David knows that he can only dwell in the presence of God if he is living out God's way of life. And this is something that is saturated in this section of the Psalter. If you go back just a few Psalms to Psalm 24, you hear these words. This is called uh, an entrance liturgy. The request is to enter the temple. Verse 3, Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place, in his dwelling place, in his temple, in his tabernacle, in his tent? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who has not set his mind upon vanity, nor sworn to deceive his neighbor. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. And this is the generation of those who seek him. Even those who seek your face, O God of Jacob. People committed to the ways of God. David knows that he can only dwell in the presence of God if he is living out God's way of life. And he knows that he can't do that apart from God himself. That's why he's asking for God to teach and to lead him. He knows that sin can hinder our prayers because it creates separation between us and God. And so you can listen to the psalmist in Psalm 66 verse 17 declare this. If I had inclined my heart toward wickedness, the Lord would not have heard me. David knows that sin can cause a a division between us and the Father, between us and Jesus. And so he entreats God to teach and to lead him in ways that are holy and righteous. And he knows that only God here can give him the strength to live in in God's way. It doesn't matter how hard we try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, we can never live according to the holiness and righteousness of God apart from him, apart from his work in our lives, apart from his spirit and power energizing such a life in us. The hard situations that we face in life do not provide us with a license to sin. David recognizes that God does not give us a hall pass on holy living if we're facing difficulty. God understands how beaten down I am right now. I'll just do this thing. It's okay. David says no. We strive for holiness even in the midst of a season of struggle. Especially in the midst of a season of struggle, David says. For David, nothing could be further from the truth. If anything, David is saying that when we are faced with the wilderness, then pray to God for holiness even more. 
Ask him to teach and lead you in his righteous way of life even more in that moment. Only after David asks for God to give him the grace of holy and righteous living, does he then request that God deliver him from external threats of his enemies. He is so profound. This ought to clue us in that our holiness is more important than our immediate deliverance. Our holiness is more important than our immediate deliverance. That ought then to fuel our prayers. For as often as we pray for God to deliver, we ought to pray for him to create in us a clean heart. To give us deeper acknowledgement of him, a deeper will to obey his commands in our lives, asking that he would pour his spirit out upon us just to do that. So we remember, we seek, we pray for God to lead us in his way of life, but then also to deliver us. And then finally, we must wait for the Lord. Listen again, finally, those final two verses of our psalm, verses 16 and 17. I would utterly have fainted had I not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. David had a confidence that even in his own lifetime, God would deliver him. Verse 17, Oh, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Oh, wait for the Lord. No explanation is needed here, really. David's exhortation stands on its own. Wait on the Lord. Trust the Lord. Be strong in that trust. Let your heart take courage because of the one who is with you. Because of the one who has delivered you in the past. Who is with you even now in the midst of these overwhelming circumstances. How might you ask we do that? How do we wait? We remember God's past acts of faithfulness to us. We seek his presence continually day to day as the single most important thing we can do. And we pray for God, for holiness and deliverance. In these ways, we can face any trial. We can face any test. We may not face it perfectly, but remember God, the one who is with us, the one we're remembering. We also remember his mercy and his grace. We can face any trial, any test. We can face any struggle, any suffering in the wilderness. Christ Church, take courage. Take heart that God is with you. Seek his presence with you. Pray to him. Ask him the desires of your heart, knowing that he hears your voice. But above all, desire him. Desire to live in accordance with who he is. And then find out that God will give you the desires of your heart. He will bless you. He will strengthen you. He will be present to you. He will come alongside of you. There's a beautiful sonnet. I was just reflecting upon this with someone this week from Malcolm Geit. Malcolm Geit writes sonnets on the Christian year, and he writes several on the Stations of the Cross, and he engages with the traditional Stations of the Cross. And so in those stations, there are three times where Jesus falls, where that's recounted. And Malcolm Geit uses that as an opportunity to, to work through his own struggle, his own wilderness struggle with depression, and in the last sonnet, he's working through the, the darkest thoughts of one's mind when you are experiencing depression. And he comes to the end there, and he says when, something along these lines. When you recognize, when you fall on your knees in that darkness, you see that your God is beside you on his knees. 
He's with you. God loves you. He longs for you to seek his face. He longs for you to follow his will. And he desires nothing more than to receive glory by delivering you from whatever it is that you face, whether in this life or in the age to come when he makes all things new. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.